1: To the naked scientist. Absolutely, that time of the afternoon when we catch up with Christmas. Of course, we know him and love him as the naked scientist. Welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to speak to you once again, Chris. Oh,
2: hi, hi Rafuway. You know, I've got a bit of homework from last week because um, yes. I've been sent a clarification because I was asked last week what's the longest word in the English dictionary? And uh-huh. I copped out and said, well, I think it might be anti-disestablishmentarianism. And I'm very grateful to someone who <laughs> went on to the Naked Scientist Facebook page. You can find us if you just look up Naked Scientists on Facebook. And, and she said to me, actually, the longest word is, and are you ready for this? I have it in front of Tell me. Tell me. Pneumono ultramicroscopic silico-volcano-coniosis. Now, this is a bit of a contrived artificial long word it basically Uh says this is lung disease caused by inhaling fine (laughs) ash and sandy dusts basically it's inflammation in your lungs but pneumono ultramicroscopic silico vulcanoconiosis is the longest word in the oxford english dictionary
1: And I will take your word for the pronunciation there Um, (laughs) because I can't see it in front of me. That's fantastic Um, that, uh, of course, there's always someone just making, keeping you honest, right, just ready and willing to point you in the right direction. Let's start with a voice note that was sent through a little earlier on. Just a question regarding COVID um, and it being airborne. Does that mean that we're walking through a sea of COVID droplets? And secondly, is there any news around antibodies being developed and thirdly can are people being reinfected thank you bye hmm.
2: very good question a raft of questions that are there isn't it yeah well yeah, okay uh, first question about airborne spread now we've always been very clear this is a respiratory infection therefore it spreads through the air and there are many infections that are airborne infections flu being a really good example of that other kinds of coughs and colds those sorts of viruses when you cough when you sneeze, when you just breathe, you blow out droplets, which are fine particles, blobs of water. But because they've come from the surfaces of your airways, which is where the virus grows, some of those Mm -hmm. droplets can contain virus particles. Heavier droplets tend to sink to the floor quite quickly, but lighter droplets tend to stay airborne for quite a while. So if you're sharing air with someone for a significant period of time, and that is you're sitting in a closed space with them, the windows are closed, the doors closed, and the air is just going round and round in the room, there's a high likelihood Mm -hmm. that, yes, you're breathing in what was in that person's lungs not so long ago. And a good way of thinking about this is if that person was smoking a cigarette, which they absolutely should not do, but say they were, you can pretty much guarantee you're going to be smelling the smoke on the other side of the room quite quickly. Now, smoke particles mm. are much smaller than than virus particles, but they still act as a proxy marker for where the air is going because the smoke is travelling on air currents. So if you can smell the smoke, you're probably also encountering fine droplets that were in that person's chest just now. So therefore, yes, mm. you, we are all effectively walking through and and breathing in a soup of other people's stuff that they just breathed out. Now, in terms oh, of that the, and oh, no, that's lovely, isn't it? The question yeah. about antibodies, I think what's being asked is: Are we getting immune when we catch coronavirus? Do we have an antibody yes, response? But then, does mm-hmm. that protect us long term? Now, the answer is: You definitely produce antibodies against the coronavirus when you've had it, but not everyone produces very large numbers of antibodies. Some people respond better by uh, what's called a T cell response. Their immune system fights off the virus using white blood cells and it doesn't produce very many antibodies. Other people produce very high levels of antibodies so there's already a difference there. But everyone produces an immune response who recovers and that fights off the virus. Left Mm. in the bloodstream is almost like the footprint, the immunological footprint of having caught the virus which certainly provides short-term protection. What we don't know is how long the long term protection will be. We've only known about the virus for six months. So we don't know, apart from the fact that we can test people who've had it six months ago, and they appear to still be resistant to it. What we don't know is what will happen if we look in another six months. Because if you look Mm -hmm. at the natural coronaviruses that circulate in humans, there are four coronaviruses that cause seasonal outbreaks of coughs and colds. People don't make long term immune responses to those, the antibodies and the other immune responses that they make to them those viruses decline with time and after a year or so they're gone. So what we don't know is if this new coronavirus is going to be the same and if we're therefore going to return to susceptibility a year after we've had it or not and that has obvious implications for vaccines and therefore it's a very hot topic for people to be studying at the moment
1: absolutely absolutely and of course uh, anyone who's interested in those vaccine passports then that might have put paid to those aspirations as well chris
2: well it might do that's right um because yeah. obviously everyone's saying oh well what i what i'll do is i'll just go and catch this thing or or even get a vaccine if there is one let's say and then i'll be immune and that's fine but actually it might not be and I think people are being very cautious about this because they don't want to encourage people to actively seek it out because there are some young people, for instance, who are thinking, well, why don't I just go and get infected because then I'll be immune and then it puts paid to it and I don't have anything to worry about. But actually what that could do is to encourage more mass outbreaks. So people are emphatic. We absolutely don't want that to happen. But equally, having one of these immune passports doesn't necessarily at the moment mean anything because we don't really understand the long-term immunity.
1: Okay, Christine and Centurion, you've got a question for the Naked Scientist. Go ahead, please. Chris, what is the difference, please, between a virus and a bacteria?
2: Hello, Christine. Well, a, a virus is much smaller than a bacterium. A bacterium is a cell in its own right. It's a microorganism and it's a lot smaller than one of our human cells but it's an independent entity. That bacterial cell has its own genetic information in there and it has all the machinery it needs to make baby bacteria. And usually bacteria divide in what's called a binary fashion. So the bacterium will make another bacterium by splitting in half and then the two halves will grow bigger until they're adult-sized bacteria and then they'll split again and split again. And so the bacteria can grow very, very fast, but they are their own entity they are a cell Mm. now a virus on the other hand is a hundred times smaller than a bacterial cell but uh, is, is so small that it contains just genetic information and no machinery to make more viruses so viruses need a cell to grow in And a virus can infect one of our cells, it can infect a plant, or it can also infect bacteria. Even bacteria can catch a cold. There are bacterial-praying viruses called phages, which will go and attack bacteria and turn them into a virus factory. Viruses, when they get into a cell, their sole purpose is to grow more viruses. And they do that by copying themselves hundreds to thousands of times in the cell that they've targeted and then the cell is often compromised it dies in the process but not exclusively but usually it dies and then all those progeny viruses come out and they either infect other susceptible cells or they're coughed or sneezed or weed or pooed out of the body and then they go on to infect other individuals so the distinction here is bacteria can cause infections and viruses can cause infections but bacteria are their own living entity they can grow independently outside the body mostly not always but mostly Mm -hmm. viruses on the other hand absolutely need a cell to grow in and They are therefore regarded as a parasite, whereas bacteria aren't.
1: Fascinating stuff. Uh, Mandla in Rudiweta has got a question for you, Chris. Go ahead, Mandla.
2: Hi. uh, Mine is probably uh, what I would call a
0: frivolous one. Maybe. I don't know how people would look at it. I was just thinking about it the other day. Uh, I grew up, I was raised by my grandmom, and she used to tell us that if you leave your hair to be too long, if you've got long hair, like you end up having in Afro, (laughs) you become thin. So I started thinking, could there be a scientific proof of this? Because then I started looking around, you know, some of the famous people with Afros. I'm actually convinced that most of the ones that I know, are actually, they are lean in terms of body size. (laughs) That is Uh, so interesting, matter. (laughs) I reckon
2: your grandma was just using this as an excuse to encourage you to look smart and tidy. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Because um, basically there's no truth in that. Because hair is a protein it's a protein called keratin it's the same protein actually that your fingernail and toenails are made of except in hair it grows into a thin filament and on your nails it grows into a flat sheet but once you've turned the protein in your body into hair the hair is dead and you can't get the protein back so your hair is going to grow regardless and therefore it's not going to affect or has no bearing on what's going on in your body once you have made the hair If you don't have enough protein coming into your body, you will lose weight and you will Mm. become thin. And if you have uh, insufficient protein coming into your body, your hair will actually stop growing. So, in fact, it's the opposite of what grandma's saying, that if you don't have enough protein, you're going to get thin. And that's also going to make your hair thin. Um, Whereas if you have a good diet, your hair will grow at its maximum rate. Because a person who's eating properly is turning their excess calories and their excess amino acids into the protein that makes hair. So I think she was just saying that to make sure you remain smart and tidy. No link between afros and body habitus.
1: <laughs> the myths that stay with us right into adulthood. It's fascinating stuff. Devoho in the Johannesburg CBD. Uh, welcome to the show and uh, direct your question to Chris.
0: My question is, um, is about the temperature. I work for a courier company, I deliver in a lot of companies. Um, what fascinates me is the temperature reading that I see on the temperature scanners. It goes up and down. Is it my temperature that's going up and down, or is it um, the scanners that are reading me in a different way? I don't know.
2: Are you talking about when people take your temperature to see if you might be running a fever? Those sorts of scanners? Yeah. Um, there's a range of things here. One is that human body temperature is a dynamic thing. It's not a fixed thing. Although we call ourselves warm-blooded and we talk about a normal temperature, the normal temperature does vary. It wanders around a bit across the day. Mm-hmm. It's cool. We're much cooler at night when we go to sleep. And I don't mean cool as in wear shades and kind of snazzy clothes. We, we actually get colder at night because your metabolism slows down. There's no point in having your metabolism thundering away, producing all this energy you don't need at night. So your body turns down the thermostat when we go to sleep at night and it revs us up again in the morning when we're going to wake up. When you go exercising, temperature is going to rise on a cold day temperature of exposed bits of the body is going to be much lower than the temperature on a hot day so there's a whole range of factors here and that's not taking into account the fact that many of these scanners will also have a degree of inaccuracy the medical grade ones that have been properly calibrated they won't but some of the devices Mm -hmm. that are being used are not very well calibrated And or or they were miscalibrated or the calibration has wandered and so when you use them on yourself in one location and then someone else comes along with a different one and uses it then you get different readings so it could be a range of factors, dynamic human body temperature, the external conditions or also how well the temperature measuring device is actually working but the key thing is that if you have a really really high temperature it gets picked up and then you can be warned, you've got a really high temperature there's something wrong, you should go home or go and see a doctor or um, hopefully you'd know if you mm. had a really low temperature because you you would feel really cold but you're always going to expect a little bit of natural variation in your temperature
1: yeah and to that point is there some kind of standard practice in terms of looking after and storing these um uh, storing uh, storing these instruments uh, i've had uh, i've had an interesting uh, experience as well where the difference between stepping out the car and getting the temperature taking in the car was two whole degrees and that was strange granted i had the heat on um but you know it was just a difference of two minutes between the two readings
2: yeah uh it, it's more likely to be an operator thing as well if you've got a person who's measuring the temperature on one part of the body but then they're not consistently measuring it on the same part of the body then that could also account for some of the variation as well
1: 702 the naked scientist we're taking your questions for Dr. Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist, Warren in the Johannesburg CBD. You've got a question for the Naked Scientist. Go ahead.
0: Oh, yes. Well, I wanted to because I try to grow my nails. Hmm. But when they grow and reach a certain stage, they just seem not to grow again. But the ones that I, I clip, they seem to like grow, sprout out very fast.
1: Okay.
2: So I guess you're wondering, uh, Warren, is is there some kind of signal? Do your your nails know that they've got too long and they slow down? Or do they know they've been trimmed and therefore to grow more? And you could extrapolate that and say, if I shave my hair or shave my beard, women worry about shaving their legs. If you shave your legs, does that make the hair on your legs grow more and and bushier and thicker and sharper and so on? Mm -hmm. And the answer to all the above is no. Your nails are completely dead tissue. They have no idea whether they've been trimmed or not. And ditto your hairs. And the reason that hair, when you shave your legs, for example, and it feels spikier and bushier and thicker, is because when the hair grows naturally, it wears away on the end and makes a fine, thin, tapered point. But when you've cut it off brutally with a razor what comes through is a blunt-ended, fairly thick, sharp-edged hair, which feels coarser to the touch and takes time to wear down. So it gives the impression that actually hair grows thicker if you shave it. It doesn't. It doesn't make any difference at all. Now, where the nails are concerned, what's probably happening there is that when you grow your nails a bit longer, they're more likely to get traumatised or rubbed down, worn away, injured damaged rubbed rubbed away because you're knocking them Mm -hmm. on things and also your nails grow at about 1.6 to 2 millimeters a month on your fingers toenails about one millimeter a month and when you've got very short nails a millimeter adds a big amount to a short nail but when you've already got very long nails a millimeter on an already long nail doesn't look like very much so it becomes a more imperceptible change so i think there's a range of things going on One is that they're more likely when they're longer to get worn and broken and worn down faster. And second, a millimetre added to something that's already very long is much harder to notice. So you might miss the fact that they're growing, but they still will be.
1: Okay, interesting. What of uh, supplements that claim to help you grow nails and hair?
2: Well, a lot of them are just made up to make the people who make those things rich and the the only benefit is to their wallet um, there There are things that you can buy shampoos and so on that make your hair look nice or your 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 nails look look shinier and so on and you can buy various kits to shine them up and things but nothing is going to affect the fundamental process which is that there is a growth plate. In the scalp, it's a hair follicle, for example. In your finger and toenails, there is a nail plate. And this is a a, a line of stem cells which are producing the protein keratin and laying down a matrix of that keratin to form the nail or form the hair. And their raw Mm. material is energy and calories and protein from the body and so they're extracting from the bloodstream the raw material they need which are the amino acids to make the keratin protein so if you want to make your hair grow properly then you need a healthy body and a healthy diet The one thing that is noticeable, there's a a phenomenon called Bose lines, which is a ridge that can happen in nails. And people who Mm -hmm. have certain treatments that damage or arrest the growth of rapidly dividing cells will sometimes get ridges in their nails, almost like a watermark uh, or a set of rings in a tree. And they chart when someone's cells or body were not healthy. And so you can sometimes see people who've had a treatment for cancer, for example, which temporarily cuts down the growth of of dividing cells or stops them growing so fast. And you'll see that the nails have this ridge which corresponded to when they had their treatment. Uh, That's that's one example of of when nails won't grow as much. But if they're working properly, they'll grow at their normal maximum rate because they're well-fed, well-nourished, and they just churn out the nail protein or the hair protein as fast as they can.
1: Lovely. Andrew and Hamas Skraal, welcome to the show. What's your question?
0: Hello, sorry, receiver. no worries. <laughs> uh, hello, Dr. Chris. Um, I just want to find out what happened to the pieces of the Lunar module and the Moon Rover that were left behind by the Apollo from Apollo 11 up to, up to the last landing. Are they still on mm. the moon or have they landed on the surface of the moon? Y-
2: the stuff is all still there. Along with the footprints and the tyre tracks of the vehicles that were driven around, the things that they used that they couldn't take away with them are all still there. And they, they have been photographed since. In the early 2000s, there was a mission called Smart One, which uh, went into orbit around the moon, making various measurements, and it photographed in its uh, last days, as the mission began to end, it flew a number of times over some of the landing sites and took pictures. So we actually have those, those images of uh, those things, and they're, they're all still there, along with the mirror that the astronauts put on the moon's surface so that they can beam a laser from the Earth's surface to the moon and back again, which happens multiple times a day, and which is how we know how far it is to the moon, because we can time how long the mm. light beam takes to get out there and get back. And we also therefore know that the moon is moving about two centimetres further away from the Earth, Every year.
1: Sure. Nice question, then, Bernard. Welcome to the show. What's your question for Doctor Chris? Uh,
0: good afternoon. Uh, my question is: um, I'd like to know—is um, there any particular reason why toddlers almost invariably, you know, wear their shoes wrongly? <laughs> that is, one to the left, the left one to the right, the right one to the left. <laughs>
2: Yeah, my children were the same. They really struggled to tell left from right and they don't realise the the subtly different shape of a right and left shoe when they're little. And it's the same with gloves. Kids will try and put gloves on the wrong way and everything to start with because what you're asking them to do is to make an association between something they're looking at and interpret the shape of the thing they're looking at and then make the connection between how that shape corresponds to the shape of their body and therefore which one goes where. And it's something that y- you need a slightly more developed brain to do that. So very small children struggle to make those connections between this shape, and they know it's a shoe, but then working out it's a shoe and which bit of the body it goes with, because they have to hold in mind it's a shoe and it's a right shoe, and then work mm-hmm. out, well, where does a right shoe go? A right shoe goes on a right foot. And making all those connections, it's, it's too many steps in the, in the sort of cognitive chain for a small brain to cope with. So it takes a little bit longer to coordinate all those different uh, sets of of instructions in order to get your right foot in your right shoe.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, it certainly gives us a great chuckle as the parents sure and as family. <laughs> <laughs> Last one is uh, from Pat in Johannesburg. Welcome to the show, Pat. What's your question?
0: Hi, Chris,
1: I want to find
0: out something from you, please. Uh, you have all these um, companies advertising that they can grow somebody's hair, Back or they use laser to be able to do that. So from what you said earlier on, it looks like they are selling like, us uh,
1: snake oil. Old people, yeah? Pat is saying essentially fork uh, companies selling products that claim to be able to help men with hair loss and balding. Uh, these claims that they're making are in effect not true.
2: There are some hair restoration processes that do have a degree of effect. Now, the most successful one is you do a hair transplant. Um, sure. What they do is go to the parts of your scalp where you're relatively more hirsute, and they take small numbers of hair follicles, and the hair follicle is the chunk of your scalp with all the stem cells in it, and they implant those into the parts of the scalp where there is a paucity of hair, usually brought on by what we call male pattern baldness this is a heritable condition it's where we don't know exactly why but there are specific patches of the scalp that are more susceptible to the influence of the hormone testosterone and testosterone gets converted into a form that poisons hair follicles in that pattern so hair transplant one way to do it there are also some drugs that can increase or rejuvenate the activity of existing surviving hair follicles And if you make thicker hairs and make them grow better, you can give the impression of more hair coverage. And when hair follicles first begin to fail as we go into a bald state, then hairs become thin and more wasted looking. And as a result, it makes the hair look thinner. So if you make the hair grow thicker and faster, Mm -hmm. you can give the impression of more coverage. But you can't at the moment with these drugs bring back hair follicles that have completely died off but you can certainly restore some quiescent or resting hair follicles to activity. People are looking at this, though, and ways in which we might be able to persuade uh, follicles to either form again in the first place or, or make sure. more follicles that we could implant with a transplant to to give people a choice as to whether or not they want to go bald or not.
1: Fantastic. Uh, Dr Chris Smith, always a pleasure, always fun Thanks, to chat you. Away. We'll have to leave Take it right care. there. An absolute pleasure. You too.